Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BV Energy Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BV Energy Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Eric. It's great to be joining you, and I'm truly honored to introduce our guest today. Today, we're going to be speaking with Professor Dilip Soman. Dilip is a world leader in behavioral science. He's currently the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Science and Economics at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He serves as the director of the Behavioral Economics in Action Research Center, or BEAR Center at Rotman. And his research is in the area of behavioral economics and in particular its applications to consumer well-being, marketing, and policy. Dillip's also the author of a wonderful best-selling book called The Last Mile, which I'm sure we'll be speaking about later today. And he teaches a massive open online course, or MOOC, uh, called BE101X, Behavioral Economics in Action. Dilip, I am especially honored to welcome you for at least two personal reasons. First, you maybe don't know, but you have been one of my professors as I have followed your MOOC in 2013, that I have enjoyed a lot and that I highly recommend. And I like the idea to interview my professor. <laughs> Second, because we met some years ago, I think it was in 2018, first time maybe at the Bakes 2018 in Sydney, Australia. And also some months later, when you were kind enough to invite me to speak at the BAD conference. I love this name, Behavioral Approach to Diversity, that you organized in Toronto. So thanks uh, for this, Dilip. And it is a pleasure and an honor for Scott and myself to have the opportunity of an in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Dilip. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Scott. Uh, let me begin by firstly saying how wonderful it is to be here. Um, it's July in Toronto, and this would have been the month where I suspect I would have seen both of you here for the Behavioral Exchange Conference, but I guess the world had other plans for us. So here we are. Uh, thanks again. And I did not know, Eric, that you were in the first cohort. I do remember having a conversation about BX uh, or BE101X. Uh, so it's always wonderful to have uh, ambassadors like you. So thank you for all of that. Uh, to, to start us off, it would be great if you could share a little bit of your own personal history in terms of how you became engaged with behavioral science. I don't know if there was a researcher or a mentor that had a strong influence or, or maybe an experiment that, that had a strong impact on your early days. Yeah, so like Sound of Music, I think I'm going to start at the very beginning. Uh, and, and my very beginning goes back to college. So I, I'm trained as an engineer and in many ways, I'm still an engineer. So I, you know, I obviously don't study fluid mechanics anymore, and I don't study uh, hydraulics or, or machine design. Uh, but a lot of what I do is really diagnosing 
an engineering type problem, diagnosing a problem with a system and trying to fix it. So I got my degree in mechanical engineering uh, back in India. And then I spent time on the shop floor a little bit. And my first big job was really sales and service for these big, bulky hydraulic machines that you've probably seen in the French countryside, the earth moving machines, right? And so you had these like really big pieces of equipment. They cost thousands and thousands of dollars, um, hundreds and hundreds of parts in them. And they, they were sophisticated. They were built with the sort of highest levels of precision. Um, and and the phone calls I used to get back then were really uh, my customers calling me and saying, the machine has stopped. Could you fix it? Right. Um, and that was an interesting ex- experience for me because oftentimes in school, we, we start with the theory. We then use it to build up towards complex things like machines. Uh, but this was a bottom-down approach. This was like, I've got a machine. I've got to figure out how this damn thing works and 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 what's what's going on so um it, it was a great experience it, it taught me diagnostics but it also taught me end user behavior so as an engineer i mean we would spend countless hours trying to improve the performance of the machine by half a percent and there'd be celebrations if the horsepower went up by 0.5 uh, things like that and and then i went to the field and it turns out that people didn't care i mean our customers not only did not care, they, they didn't even know. Uh, and so it, it struck me that there was a fundamental mismatch between what we were trying to optimize and what our end user was looking for. And so that got me interested in, in psychology, obviously at that point in time, pop psychology. Uh, I read a lot. I ended up doing an MBA after that uh, and uh, had a short stint in advertising, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, I, you know, I, I learned how to uh, do simple things like write copy or speak the language of the consumer, things like that. Um, and then for reasons that are still unknown to me, I decided to apply for a PhD. Uh, I ended up at the University of Chicago. Uh, this was back in 1992. Uh, and that's where, uh, you know, that was really the hotbed of behavioral science back then. And, uh, you know, we had people like uh, Robin Hogarth and Joshua Clayman, who, who were more the cognitive psychology uh, style people. And then, of course, Richard Taylor joined uh, when I was partway in my PhD, and he ended up being one of my mentors at the University of Chicago. And so uh, I I guess in many ways, it was a confluence of my general awareness of the fact that there there was a mismatch between what the world tries to optimize and what uh, we as consumers and and end users tend to seek. Uh, And then all of a sudden, there were these tools that were available to me. There were these theories. There were these uh, wonderful paradigms. Um, And and, and I, I guess it would be fair to say without a doubt that if there was any one person that's influenced my own work, it's it's Richard Taylor. I mean, in in many different ways, right? I, I think he taught us several things as academics. Uh, it's not like he actively preached these things, but you just kind of just being in the presence and watching him do his work. So uh, he taught me, for example, to not write too many papers or not write too many theories, but the ones you write they should be priceless ones. They should be clever, simple. Um, he taught me that the best research isn't surprising. Uh, it might actually be exposed obvious, uh, but nobody thought of it that way before. Uh, he, he, ta- he taught all of us that our research should be about the world and not about the theory. So he always kept saying, make sure your research 
is about the world around you and not about just extending a theory. And so, so I'd say he was hugely influential. Um, there were a few other people, you know, George Lowenstein, uh, for, for, for many of the same reasons. Um, I think there were a lot of other people who played slightly different roles, uh, roles of encourager. And so I think early on in an academic career, you really want people to tell you that while your research is different, while you're not following the beaten path, it's important. And, and so in my case, I had people like Itamar Simonson, who's at Stanford, uh, who ended up refereeing some of my papers. Uh, he gave amazing advice. Um, and, and then a lot of my peers actually were, were very inspirational. So, you know, ar- around the time I finished, there was Sandil Mullenathan, who was finishing his PhD, um, Rohini Pandey, uh, who did some amazing developmental econ work, Stefano Delavegna. So, so all of these were people that I think kind of we came around the same time. And, and I think they've inspired me in, in more ways than I can count. Wow. Wow. Um, it, it sounds as though, I mean, in listening to you speak about your background and, and, and so forth, it, it just strikes me that you kind of are somewhat at the intersection of the academic world and the business world, you know, both, both in your background and now, and now in your, in your current role. And I was curious if, if you had some thoughts and observations on the interplay between the academic world and the practitioner or, or business world uh, based on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting disconnect for me when I started. I, I came to a PhD because I was interested, as I said, in helping the world do better. I mean, I, that sounds like a lofty goal, but a lot of my interest in doing research were was from practical problems. I mean, having grown up in the global south, I'd seen poverty. Uh, I have to confess, I haven't experienced it as closely as some of the people that I grew up with did. Uh, but I've seen poverty. I've seen uh, hunger. I've seen you know lack of access to basic infrastructure, and I've, I figured that research would be. Uh, perhaps the best way to tackle some of those issues. And uh, and when I first started in academia, I was actually disappointed at how little crossover there was. So uh, our, our research was written in a particular style, a particular flavor uh, to get published, to appeal to other people like us. Uh, and I think during my time in academia, the other sort of source of uh, frustration has been the fact that academic, academia has tended more and more to attract people that have less and less of practical experience. Uh, and that's been a bit of a challenge. So, so I think, you know, if you, if you broadly think about two styles of research, there was Richard Taylor, start with the world and see if your research can, can help it versus uh, start with the theory and, and see if you can extend that theory. Um, at least in, in sort of our part of the world, we saw a lot more of that second type, the theoretical work. Um, I suspect the pendulum is swinging back. I mean, I, at least a lot of journals, a lot of professional societies have now at least started acknowledging the importance of making a difference. Uh, but I still think we're a long way away. And I think that, that, that problem I had between maximizing uh, a different objective function, I think, also existed in academia. I mean, we, we maximize the research to appeal to ourselves um, and, and, and not to our consumers. And we, I think, tend to forget that our consumers are not just other academics, but they're policymakers, they're businesses, they're citizens. So, so I do see that convergence happening, which is a great thing. But it was a bit of a struggle early on. Dilip, uh, I would like to start with uh, some of the most important works you have done to diffuse the knowledge of behavioral science, especially 
the MOOCs that I mentioned uh, before, Behavioral Economics in Action, your book, The Last Mile, and also your work at uh, Bear Behavioral Economics at uh, Rotman. So first is about the MOOC, which I think was released for the first time in 2013. That's correct. Uh, could you tell us the story of this idea? What was your initial objective? Oh, gosh. Uh, so uh, we, we know memories are imperfect. So I'm going to try and reconstruct as best as I can what happened actually eight years ago. 2012 was when I first started thinking about the MOOC. It was an interesting time in education more generally. It was we first started seeing online courses and there were a lot of debates at the university, not just ours, but but all across academia about, you know, will MOOCs replace the university and will our teaching models be, be you know, fundamentally different? And I felt if I had to contribute to that debate in any way, I had to actually do it to, to figure out if I could. So, so I think that was one of the things that I wanted, uh, wanted to accomplish, right? But I guess the bigger one was kind of going back to the point I made about uh, my experience with the global south and 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 all of the fundamental problems and uh, I figured if it was possible to create a body of content that could help people from all across the world uh, wouldn't that be great and so that that's where really the the genesis of uh, be 101 x came about is, is I wanted to do something uh, that was easy to understand but it wasn't just look isn't this a cool field uh, I wanted to show people the application. I wanted to show people the methods. And so uh, th that's why we had that in the format that it was. Um, it, it was a great experience. And, and I, mean, I learned a lot about teaching just by doing that MOOC. Uh, but now it's been, I think this is currently, it, it is its seventh iteration. It changes a bit every year. Uh, but that was the goal. And uh, it's amazing that, uh, you know, today I have... Um, a lot of people who have been in the MOOC, we've got more than 250,000 registrations over the last uh, seven years. Uh, but it's nice to get an email every now and then from people in Africa or Vietnam saying, you know, Professor, I took your MOOC and here's an idea I've come up with. And, uh, and I read all of them and I respond to them. And uh, to, to me, that's been immensely gratifying. Yeah, okay. It was uh, really uh, great for me to follow uh, your MOOC at, uh, at that time. Just after, I think I remember, uh, Dan Ariely uh, has made his own MOOC just some months before yours. So I was so excited to have Dan and after uh, you. More uh, practical, I think uh, Dan was more about the main concept, uh, even in his uh, style, which is absolutely wonderful. And uh, your MOOC was more uh, practical, I think, really about uh, nudging, uh, process. Uh, you have I think just uh, published before or at that time uh, a paper with uh, Nina Mazar and Kim, I think, a practical guide for nudging or something like this. That, that's right. And, and I think you raise an important point, which is oftentimes uh, we talk about different styles of research. You spoke about Dan's versus mine. Uh, we spoke about theory versus applied. I do want to emphasize we need everyone. We, we need people to do theory. We need people to do uh, applied. We need people to document phenomena, right? Uh, so that's not to say that we should have more or, or this is the right style and that's not the right style. But, but to your point, I think that's where I felt I could make a difference uh, is, is really taking the science 
to practice. Uh, so I, I, I've always said we have a wonderful behavioral science, but we don't have a good science of how to use the science. Uh, so, so back then I would, you know, a lot of other interesting things that happened, nudge had been written two or three years uh, prior to that. Uh, and I'd get a lot of people calling me and saying, you know, this is really cool. I love that default study. I love the compromise effect. How do I do it? Uh, how do I know which effect to study? How do I know in what sequence to do a, do an experiment, right? Um, and so that was really the genesis of that document, the Practitioner's Guide to Nudging. We got a bunch of people together. We said, um, you know, if I, was, if I was an engineer, again, going back to my roots, uh, how do I start? What resources should I build? How do I think about different kinds of situations? Can I create these categories of nudges? Uh, and so we started with that. Uh, I think that sort of thinking also led to the book that you mentioned, The Last Mile. Um, but to your point, I think it's nice to have that translation piece, uh, but it's not just translation. A lot of my work has tended to be what I call co-creational, uh, which is I, I really can't do my work without my industry partners or my government partners. We need them and they need us. And, and I think that's the way we should think about research going forward is embedding it in the context in which that research is going to be used. Okay, great. Uh, my second question is about this uh, wonderful book, uh, uh, The Last uh, Mile, I think, which has been published in 2015. Uh, that's correct. It was late 2015. Uh, there is now also a Chinese edition of The Last Yeah, Mile. I saw it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, th that was an interesting book to write. I think it... it followed from a lot of the thinking that I spoke about earlier. I had done the MOOC. I had worked with Nina and Kim Lee and my other colleague, Min Zhao, on this practitioner's guide. And, and so uh, I, I was in that space where, where I was thinking about the science of, of science. And I think the last mile kind of followed there. Um, the, the idea behind the last mile was, again, I, if I had to trace it back, it goes back to my Uh, earth moving machine days, right, is, is there's a lot of stuff organizations do in the first mile or everything but the last mile, which is, you know, the product development and the testing and all of that stuff. Right? Uh, and we spend a lot of time and energy doing that. But when the rubber hits the road, when the product finally gets out, when the idea finally gets launched, uh, that's where people stumble. Uh, and, and people stumble because now you are almost, uh, and I quote a, a chief marketing officer that I spoke to back then, we are at the mercy of our consumers. Uh, and, you know, consumers are unpredictable and we know that they're affected by so many other things. Uh, and so that's what I felt that if we could actually develop a science of how to do the first mile so that we don't have the last mile problem, um, wouldn't that be nice? And, and, and I keep saying uh, sort of a lot of the foundational ideas of behavioral science are, are all in some of the works of Richard Taylor. And so including the language of humans versus econs, right? And so in the last mile, uh, I make the point that the, the fundamental challenge we have is that we tend to design products and services and processes for humans uh, who are actually not humans. We design them for econs. Uh, we expect them to care about their future. We expect them to consume information, right? And so to me, this whole rational, irrational debate is, uh, is kind of a secondary debate. I mean, I, I really don't think we should expect people to be rational uh, because we weren't designed for that. 
and to me, expecting people to be rational is a bigger form of irrationality. Uh, so, so you know, th- th- those are the kinds of ideas I was trying to push in the last mile as well. Again, it was a very practical book, as you mentioned. A uh, couple of big ideas uh, that I'll just quickly touch upon. One, one, the idea of of you know, devil being in the details, right? Uh, so, in, in the business school I teach, I suspect in businesses and other forums that you've gone to, we teach our students, we encourage our employees to think big, right? So big ideas, right? Um, and, and I think all of us on this call know that the success of big ideas is predicated by attention to little things. Um, so there's a beautiful book by Owen Service, uh, which you probably read, and Rory Gallagher called Think Small. And I, I, I use that as a, as a little punchy mantra for my students. It's like, focus on the details, right? Uh, so importance of auditing how decisions are made and when consumption happens, I think that's that's key. Uh, and then the idea of being empirical and testing frequently and adapting uh, in, in response to that testing. So this whole, whole notion of, you know, just because it worked somewhere else for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for me. And, and I think people need to embrace that fully. And so, you know, we have to figure out how to get people to test. So that's what the book was about. It goes into a whole bunch of methods and process models for how to test and how to think about a product design process, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, I recommend for sure to our listener to read your book, but could you share your main ideas and advice about what you call mastering the last mile? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think uh, th- there are really two or three simple big picture ideas. Uh, I, I think the biggest one is this notion of making sure we understand what sort of behavior change challenge we're looking to fix. So oftentimes I find companies try and do too much with an, with an intervention, right? And, and you've experienced this too probably where you'll sit with a client, we sit with a partner, they say, we really need to improve customer engagement, and I say, well, that's great, right? But what are the behaviors that will either show you that engagement has gone up or are, are a component of that engagement piece? So really taking that big, complex challenge and breaking it into very specific behaviors, I think, is key, right? Because once you know what those specific behaviors are, you can then try and understand the frictions to them. Uh, and once you know those frictions, then you can think about what the right behavior uh, tool is. Um, and, and then, of course, the testing piece, right? So part of it is that logical process for decomposing a complex challenge into little pieces, but then really thinking about how I would test. And again, I keep going back to my earth-moving machines. That's what this whole idea is about, right? Uh, is figure out what, which part of the machine might not be working, figure out how you would test that, and then clean up the friction. Uh, so at some level, it's as simple as that. But again, like the devil, the devil, as I say, is in, in the details. Thanks a lot. Uh, third question uh, is about uh, your work at uh, BEAR, Behavioral Economics at Trotman. In the BEAR website, it is mentioned BEAR conducts leading edge academic research in the field of behavioral economics to help organizations better understand how real people act and in turn design better products, services, and programs for them. Could you tell us more about what you do concretely at Bear, and sharing maybe some example or case studies uh, so we know more uh, what Bear is doing? 
Sure. So, so Bear is like any other academic center in terms of its structure. It's housed within a university. Our goal is to push academic research, but we are very different from every other academic center in almost every other way. Uh, and and uh, the way I'll describe it is a lot of academic centers are about knowledge translation, right? So famous professor comes up with a famous new idea. Uh, can I make it applicable to business? And we then try translate that and centers often do that. They will find ways of translating that for their, for their non-academic partners. Uh, we follow the opposite process, right? So in a traditional center, you'd have the research first, then the translation, then maybe a dissemination conference and so on and so forth, right? Uh, we've often done things in reverse. We've said the best way of learning about what to solve is conversations with our partners, right? So for example, the bad conference that you came to, Eric, uh, Behavioral Approaches uh, to Diversity, a lot of research came from discussions that were on happening on stage during that conference, right? Is, is we'd say, well, here's the issues facing people. Look, nobody's done anything in this area. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to have research? Right? So, so we often do things like those events to bring together people who at first glance we might think have absolutely nothing in common. Uh, but I think sharing perspectives, uh, exchanging ideas, and building a research agenda based on that is one thing we do a lot of, right? Uh, I mentioned the term co-creational. Uh, that is the other foundation of the work we do. Uh, so be it our work with uh, some of our regulatory agencies here in Canada on how to best design disclosures uh, to maximize welfare, uh, to work we've done in Mexico and uh, elsewhere, uh, we can't do that research without our partners. Our partners give us access to insights, but also serve as a test case for some of our research. Uh, and likewise, they don't have the capability, perhaps, of doing you know, the, the nuanced analysis and so on and so forth. So, so I think that's the other thing we do a lot of. So uh, as the outside world sees us, we do a lot of book events, we do podcasts, so with your know, traditional knowledge translation activities, but the core of everything we do uh, is, is, our, is our research. Um, we've also started recently, about a year ago, a new initiative that's funded by the federal system here in Canada. Uh, it's called the Behaviorally Informed Organizations project. Uh, we have about 20 researchers and about 20 organizations that are part of this whole thing. And the idea is really to look at two big issues that I think will be the future of behavioral science. Uh, a is the notion of scaling successfully. I mean, you've got a since nudge 12 or 13 years of really amazing pilots, uh, great studies, great trials. Um, we don't have a very good science of scaling them up. Uh, and I think that's that's the one challenge that we're working on a lot. The other one uh, is organizations themselves. How do we get an organization to be scientific? Uh, how do we basically embed everything we know about behavioral science uh, into organizations? So I'll just give you two super quick examples of the kind of work we've done. Uh, one is with the provincial government here on organ donation. This was done a, a few years ago. Uh, and, you know, everyone that's listening to this podcast probably knows about the Europe uh, data from the 2003 science paper, the opt-in, opt-out. Uh, we are not big fans of the whole opt-in, opt-out intervention for a couple of reasons. So one is obviously there are ethical issues with uh, consent and presumed consent, uh, but let's keep those aside. The bigger one, I think, is this is a classic example of where I think behavioral science has been misapplied because we've studied defaults in the context of a single shot 
single agent decision, right? So if I want you to to buy a laptop computer, whether I present it to you as a basic model where you can add features versus a fully loaded model where you can subtract features, that's a great example of a default effect changing outcomes. But with organ donation, it's a two-step process. Step one, you have to consent to be a donor. And step two, your family after death has to consent to get the organs harvested, right? And I think opt-in, opt-out works wonderfully well for the first step. But because you get defaulted into being an organ donor, you probably will never have a conversation with your family about your wishes. Uh, and so it's the second step where we suffer, right? And, and so, so that's something that we just weren't going to do. And so we ended up with sort of a prompted choice kind of an approach where every time the citizen has an interaction with the government office, they're actually prompted. Uh, and then we create the facility, the time, the space for them to be able to complete the transaction while they are still on the premises, right? Uh, so, you know, it was a simple process engineering kind of an idea. Uh, but that was great because I think it, it helped us you know, it was a co-creational idea. It was a, 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 a simple behavioral intervention that had a fairly significant effect. The other uh, important piece of work that I think we did was with Ideas 42, which, uh, you know, is a not-for-profit consulting, uh, and uh, CONSAR, which is the pension authority in Mexico on increasing voluntary contributions for pension savings, right? And again, I'll, I'll spare all the details, but a couple of important things we learned was... The fact that, you know, ideas simply don't translate across cultures. So everything we know works in the U.S. and U.K. for improving pension contributions didn't seem to work in Mexico, right? We needed a different family of interventions. So back to the basics was important, right? We went in, uh, lots of interviews, lots of ethnography type studies. Uh, and, uh, and unless you have the discipline to do that and understand why the context in Mexico is different from the US or UK, uh, we end up with all kinds of problems. The other important thing we learned in that work was the notion of heterogeneity, which is the idea that different subgroups within your population uh, will react differently to an intervention. And, and so Eric and, and Scott, if you read any standard paper, right, our, our modus operandi in behavioral sciences is to have two conditions, a control and an intervention treatment. And we show a tall bar for treatment and we are happy, right? But within the tall bar, there are sub bars. There are some sub bars that are even taller, some even shorter. And if you can understand exactly what drives those subcategories within the treatment condition, uh, we can be a lot more efficient. So that's the other thing we learned in that in that Mexico study. So again, these are things we could do at the center because of our partnerships and because of our co-creation, uh, you know, philosophy that I don't think are really easy to do elsewhere. Okay, thanks a lot. Scott, maybe uh, regarding behavioral science in the private sector. Sure. Well, there are really two themes I, I wanted to dive a little deeper into that you referenced. Um, one is you made a reference to organizational success. And, and I was curious to hear a little more about that in terms of what advice you might give to, to business leaders or, or maybe champions and practitioners within businesses to help them infuse behavioral science thinking and learning and, and really get beyond the ad hoc individual success stories towards something more structural and organizational level? 
Uh, great question. So th this is something that I think about a lot because, as you might imagine, this is the central question is, you know, all these pilots are great. How, how do I actually fundamentally embed this stuff in my organization? I think there are a lot of things I can get into. I mean, just at the top level, I'll talk about, I, I could talk about, you know, agility, having the ability to actually change once in fact you have evidence uh, to the contrary. Um, th th think about the fact that, you know, three months into COVID, we were still seeing ads for vacations in Bermuda. Uh, that's because our, our media cycles are locked into these like four month things, right? And so that's a classic example of a non-agile uh I mean, the world has changed. We've learned new things, but we've been locked into that cycle. Uh, so, so I think one breaking that that cycle, I think, has that that's key. Being able to move quickly, that's key. Uh, that culture of experimentation, that's that's immense. I mean, I think this whole notion of, you know, back in the design world, we keep saying that you shouldn't hold your cards to your chest anymore because the sooner you get feedback, the, the quicker you update. And I think it's the same thing with behavioral science. I think uh, the sooner you start iterating, that's, that culture is important. But I think the central thing to all of this is, is what we call the cost of experimentation, right? So it's kind of ironic that for the success of behavioral science, we have to go back to traditional economics, uh, which is the laws of demand and supply. I mean, this is, uh, you know, demand and supply 101. As things become cheaper, uh, the demand for those things will go up and the demand for its complements will go up and the demand for its substitutes will go down. Uh, and, and so it is easy to hypothesize that as experimentation becomes cheaper, uh, we will see more experiments. We will see more behavioral science. We will see less armchair theorizing. Uh, and, and I think we really need to then understand what it means to reduce the cost of experimentation, right? Um, and there's all kinds of costs. There's obviously costs of collecting data, analyzing it, the ability to randomize across samples, all of the methodological issues in, uh, in, in, in being experimental. Um, but I think there are other organizational issues, uh, which is um, who does this? How will this experimental unit within the organization coordinate with other units? Um, what about the fear of failure? Uh, what about uh, sort of just the novelty of the whole thing? What about the mindset? What about the fact that people are worried that if they do an experiment and they learn that everything they thought about the customer uh, so far was wrong? Uh, so I think those are the kinds of things we need to fix. Uh, and, and I think if we can fix those, uh, th then I think uh, we will see companies being a lot more uh, behaviorally informed. Uh, but it's it's not it's not not as easy as it sounds. Unfortunately, you know that as well as I do. Right? But but that's really to me that's the key. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. I guess the other area I'd love to hear a little more uh, of your your thoughts is um, just this interplay between societal well being and business profitability. Um, you know, I, we saw there's there's an explicit reference to that on the Bear website, improving societal well being and business profitability and. I was curious, your take on the biggest untapped opportunities there. Do you, do you feel that there are areas that companies haven't tapped into where they really can find win-win-win situations that are good for themselves, their customers, and society overall? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot, right? I, I think the, the two or three big ones that I'll jump on are immediately health and wellness, uh, environmental choices, uh, food consumption, things like financial well-being. So quick example uh, from Commonwealth Bank in Australia, right? They, they did a really cool intervention where 
they basically said, look, when we advertise for our credit cards, we just focus on the positive things of the card, right? What if we are more transparent and we advertise why this card is not good for you? Okay, so if you actually go to the Commonwealth Bank website today, you'll see things like, here's when you should buy this card, here's when you shouldn't buy this card. And uh, I remember when they first did this, there was a big concern about the fact that they will be burned, that people will, will you know, drop out. Um, and I guess there was burn, but then they also learned that the people who buy cards under those circumstances use them more, they trust the bank more. Uh, so there was a, there was a clear win-win window uh, for certain kinds of segments where, in fact, this in- improved consumer decision making uh, and it made the bank profitable as well, right? Uh, or, or think about some of my early work on portion sizing and the fact that if you partition food, uh, people consume less. And, uh, and, and, and a lot of people looked at it and said, well, you know, uh, why would anyone care about this? Because you're actually getting people to consume less. Uh, wouldn't the industry push back? And, and and that's that's just a small part of the argument. The bigger finding that we had was as you make portion sizes smaller, trial also goes up, right? Uh, so, the, so, so your numbers are larger, your ends are larger. Uh, every individual isn't consuming that much, uh, but the industry as a whole doesn't suffer. So uh, long story short, I think for every little phenomena that we have, where we sort of tend to think of this as a win-loss, there is a win-win. Uh, I mean, we've done work in the area of consumer privacy, where the general idea was if you improve uh, privacy for end users, then innovation is going to get stifled. And that's not the case, right? So there are lots of these intersections where, in fact, you know, our our large internet players are are trying to help people. But it's always framed as if I help, I'm going to lose this. Uh, But there are lots of these interventions. So so I, I think, you know, health and wellness, for sure, financial well-being. Uh, environment, diversity and inclusion. I mean, these are all easy wins, but I think uh, we will end up with happier people, happier companies. Um, I, I, I think product design is the other big one, uh, and not just product, but even infrastructure, right? So as I say, I don't, I don't think our banks are built for for customers. They're built for the bankers. Uh, our, our hospitals are built for the doctors. They're not built for patients. Our, our retail stores are built for the retailers. They're not built for the shopper, right? Uh, so there's just so much we could do by taking our existing infrastructure and even redesigning that to make it easier for people. It'll, it'll make it easier for people. It'll, they'll buy you know, more. And not to say that they'll buy things they don't need, but I think you'll just facilitate purchasing. Uh, transactions are shorter. Uh, it doesn't take that long. So I think this is just a lot of win-win opportunities. Maybe a little word on public policy area. Uh, regarding your experience with the public sector and government, uh, could you share one or two interventions you have conducted with the Canadian government or some example you could share? Yeah, so I mean, I think we already spoke a little bit about the uh, organ donation uh, piece, but th- that was an interesting one at many levels because I think back to the point about devil being in the details. Uh, the prompted choice was the easy decision to make. How to execute it was the was the difficult one, right? Uh, so we had a system where, in fact, uh, and I think this is common in many jurisdictions, where you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles maybe to renew your driver's license or your health card. And at the end of that process, uh, the person would say, well, would you like to be an organ donor today, right? Now, you, you know, you spend 20 minutes in this office waiting. Uh, that's precisely the last opportunity 
or the last thing you want to do now. You want to go back to office, go back home. And, and so we changed the process. But again, in the spirit of attention to, to detail, we handed out forms at the beginning of you know, as soon as they entered the, the service station. But you know, when you have like a paper form and you're standing in line and you're trying to fill it out, your ballpoint pen goes through the paper and there's all of these like little practical challenges. Um, so there too, we did an experiment. We said, what if you printed the same thing on a small card instead of a regular paper? And, and so, you know, through that process of experimentation, we finally arrived at a system where we had a card form uh, so people could fill it in the line. We had signage on the walls so that while they were waiting in line, they had more information. Uh, and what was the nicest thing of all was by the time they actually got to the front desk to do their, you know, re renew their driver's license, the agent already had their file open. So for the agent to it wasn't a separate transaction. Uh, and so everybody was happy. The agents were happy. The end user was happy, right? So, so that's one that we really enjoyed working on. The other one uh, was sort of an example of a welfare program that Canada has. It's called the Canada Learning Bond up to $2,000 of, uh, quote unquote, free money to educate your children, right? And I remember the, when, the, when the program was first launched, a lot of the economists saying, well, who wouldn't take free money? Uh, it turns out about 84% of people didn't take the free money, right? Uh, and, and, and obviously, there's an interesting lesson here because most organizations, when they put out something that they think other people should easily jump on, and those people don't jump on it, their first reaction is maybe they don't know or maybe they don't understand, right? And so we spend all of this energy promoting and creating awareness and putting out more information. And that didn't do a thing. I mean, it improved by a quarter percent or something, right? Um, it, it was because of what I call sludge in the system, right? It, it, there were these frictions in the system where in order to qualify for the money, uh, you had to have a certain kind of bank account and to get that certain kind of registered bank account, you needed a birth certificate. To get a birth certificate, you needed to go to the government office. And, you know, the, the people that needed the money the most, the low-income Canadians, were the ones that had the least time to do all of this stuff because they were busy working three jobs and taking care of children, right? Uh, so, so correcting that, uh, then there were sort of these whole cultural sludges, right? So a lot of the people who qualified for that, uh, were recent immigrants. They came from proud cultures who didn't want to be seen in a bank accepting welfare. Uh, and so those were the kinds of things that needed to be fixed. And, and so that was a great uh, that was a great project for us as well, is, is to really understand what the frictions are and solve for them rather than sort of just focus on the nudge. It was really also about clearing the sludge. Mm -hmm. Okay. More generally, thinking about uh, your experience with government and this, in this area of public policy, do you have advice for behavioral scientists who are trying to positively influence government and public policy? Um, a lot. I mean, I don't know where to begin, but, uh, but, but I do think there is a more general question of specialization versus generalization. And here's what I mean by that, is, is, is oftentimes we've seen behavioral scientists that end up in governments that are looking for behavioral problems to solve. And, and no problem is purely behavioral, right? I mean, you know, there's always a process that needs to be improved. There's always communication that needs to be changed. There's always, uh, you know, other kinds of issues that need to be dealt with. And, 
and, and I think the danger in training people to be specialized in behavior and behavior alone is they don't really understand the rest of the system. So I find there is no substitute for knowing the substantive reality of the context that you're trying to change, right? So you could be the, the world's best doctor. You could be the world's best you know, clinician. You could be the world's best uh, earth-moving machine repair person. But unless you understand the machine and the terrain it's on, you're not going to be able to solve the problem, right? So I'd say the advice number one would be really to, to know the domain, to understand your organization, to figure out what works and what doesn't work there. And I, I, I don't think people do that as much, right? So I, I do have a broader comment, which is I think, you know, we've seen people in the area of behavioral science saying, well, you know, shouldn't we push more for specialization in behavioral science? And I think that's that's helpful, but I do think we also need to embed behavioral science into every other area of practice, right? So we teach our MBAs behavioral science. We should teach our master of finance students behavioral science. We should teach our policy students behavioral science, right? So that they can still primarily be policy people. They can still primarily be uh, finance people, uh, but they need to understand, they need to view the world through the behavioral mindset. They need to understand the human versus econ aspect. They need to understand what experimentation means, right? And that's where they can bring in specialists to help them. But I think really the challenge I see in governments and organizations is not is not so much the science, that's there. But the realization that I need the science, that's not there. Uh, and, and, and really, I think we need to invest a lot in, in that. So, so, so maybe just kind of thinking about, you know, developing a catalog of ideas where behavioral science can help. I don't think we've done that very well. All right, so people come to me and say, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm in government, what can behavioral science do for me? And, and I don't think we have, I have a nice list. I mean, we've developed some stuff here, uh, but it can help in policy design. It can help in regulation. It can help in correcting last mile problems. But I think we need to really create that catalog because then... A deputy manager can say, oh, I have that problem, right? They're not going to focus on, you know, uh, mental accounting. They don't even know what that is or, or framing, right? Uh, they want to get people to pay taxes on time. They want to get organizations to file their mercury compliance reports. That's what they care about. So I think that's the big gap. Well, from speaking about uh, government and public policy, it's obviously not not too much of a reach to start talking about uh, the, the huge issue, of course, on, on everyone's mind as we speak in the end of July 2020, which is you know, the continuing COVID crisis. And I know there's a lot of directions we could go here, but I guess most generally, we'd be interested in your perspective as, as a behavioral scientist and, and a citizen uh, in terms of the potential role of the behavioral science community and behavioral science thinking and, and, and how you think we can make a difference and continue to help. Yeah. So, so, I mean, uh, yeah, as, as you said, we could go a number of different ways. Uh, there's, there's the obvious ones, right? The, how do we, how do we use behavioral science to help ensure people wear masks or practice social distancing? I'm not going to go there because I think there's a lot of great people doing some really interesting work there. I will preface that though, by saying, um, one of the big challenges we've seen in uh, the last four months is the whole notion of conflicting information, changing advice, and how people deal with it. Right? Uh, and so we've actually been doing some research on trying to understand how people interpret dynamic advice, advice that changes with time. Uh, and, and you can think about multiple ways of doing it. So, you know, we, we had a a point of time over the last four months where a national government was saying wear a mask, 
uh, a world organization was saying you don't need to wear a mask. Um, some people said two meters, other people said one meter, right? So how do we make sense of this? Um, and, and you could think about it purely from a simple behavioral science perspective. When I get two pieces of divergent information, um, I could do one of two things. I could, I could come up with some sort of an averaging model, right? I, I could say Eric is right, Scott is right. Uh, maybe I'll just take the average of what they say. Uh, or, or it could be a Bayesian updating model, right? I hear from Eric first, so I'll go with what he says. Uh, Scott recommends the opposite. Uh, I'm going to say, well, look, you know, I started believing Eric, so I'll now be a little bit suspicious of it, but maybe not a whole lot. Uh, or they could be just a dismissal. You could say, well, these guys clearly don't have their act together. Uh, so I'm not going to trust either of them, right? Uh, and unfortunately, we've seen a lot of the third uh, happening. Okay. Uh, so how do we fix that? Well, there's some stuff from the behavioral sciences that can help us. So, for example, we know from dynamic decision making that if people know that things are going to change over time, then they are much more likely to accept the change. Right. So in a simple experimental setting, if we kind of say, well, look, you know, in, in one condition, uh, here's a here's a crisis that's evolving. I'm going to keep sharing with you the advice you get from a public health agency. Uh, and keep in mind it might change. And it's, it might change because the advice is based on local conditions and changes in transmission rate and so on and so forth versus the other condition where I don't forewarn people that it might change. I still do the same thing, right? Uh, but at least in an experiment, we find that if you warn people that it's going to change, they're much more compliant, right? If you don't warn them that it's going to change, then they start coming up with these, you know, these people clearly don't know, they're changing their mind. Uh, so I think those those aspects, I think, need to be studied a lot more than just the pure compliance ones. The other thing I'm interested in is, as an organization, how do I deal with this stuff? Right? Uh, and again, that links back to my interest in embedding behavioral science and organize. So, so if I'm leading an organization in a turbulent time versus a stable time, uh, how should my leadership style fundamentally change, right? And I don't know if either one of you are fans of star wars this is the nerdy side of me uh, empire strikes back uh, you remember the scene where han solo is flying the millennium falcon through the asteroid belt right and, and i remember i think it was like c3po who basically starts off that scene by saying do you know the probability of success is like one in 3.7 million or something like that uh and and han solo says well at this point in time probabilities are irrelevant uh and I think that's the kind of stuff that we may need to start thinking about. Right? If you don't know uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, if the world is changing rapidly, I think we have to be Han Solo piloting a Millennium Falcon rather than Star Trek Enterprise being on autopilot. Right? Because autopilot depends on history. It depends, we, we extrapolate the future based on what's happened in the past. And those models don't fit anymore. Our, our, our notion of, of future or prediction is going to change dramatically, right? So, so I think the whole behavioral science approach of quick testing, quick adapting, agility, I think is going to become a lot more important going forward, right? And I'll just say one last thing. The other thing that I think is going to be important is we need to redefine our, our mental model of what an expert is. Right? And, and you have probably faced this before, but oftentimes I'll get called into an organization as the quote-unquote behavioral expert, and I'd get asked questions such as, you know, we, we're thinking of promoting a product with a coupon versus, a, versus an ad. What should we do? Right? And I'd turn to them and say, well, I have no idea, but I can help you find out how to do it because here's the experiment I do. Right? Uh, 
and I think we need to redefine our our notion of expertise along, along those lines. I, if the if the environment is turbulent, expertise isn't about knowing what happened in the past. It isn't about uh, you know having a body of experiences to go back to because the likelihood that tomorrow is going to look like any of those is even lower. Uh, but I think expertise is going to be about how we find out about what's going to happen in the future, right? So so I think that that's where companies need to invest a lot more energy in building. A, a, a good dashboard, a good windscreen to see what's happening, what's coming at them tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, sev- several of the issues you just mentioned from conflicting information and dynamic you know, uh, decision-making to turbulence to redefining expertise, to me, they, they all somewhat tie to this larger issue of polarization as well in society. And you know, my personal sense is that Behavioral science has done a lot to diagnose some of the heuristics that may be continuing to drive it and to pull societies apart, frankly. I was curious your point of view in terms of whether you saw opportunities for for behavioral science thinking and learning to potentially help counter that and actively uh, bring people together towards the common good. Yeah, so great great question. It's, It's something I've thought about a lot. I think you are spot on in that this was a behavioral problem, without a doubt, right? Uh, so I, I think there are two sources of polarization or, or environments causing polarization. There's obviously the the notion that our past choices truncate the data that we see. Therefore, we only see a subset of what we could see, right? So a simple experiment uh, it, it could run as follows, right? I bring you into an experiment, Scott. I'm going to show you new stories about a particular point of view. Uh, And in one case, I'm going to tell you that based on what you've read before, I'm going to curate and use a simple algorithm to show you stories that I think you like, right? Now, obviously, in that world, you're just going to get stories that are consistent with your past point of view, right? Um, Then there's a second world where I force you to look at all kinds of stories and conditional on the fact that you will actually read both sides of of the story, you would expect your opinion to be less uh, less extreme, right? Uh, however, even in that world, we know that there's a confirmation bias, right? So even if I present you with 20 balanced stories, the likelihood that you would read all 20 equally and, and accept them as they are is going to be a challenge, right? But what about a third world? What, what if I created a, um, a world in which I told you that I'm going to use an algorithm, but I actually show you a more representative state of the world? Right? Uh, what's going to happen there? That's the interesting question, right? So is the data truncation problem happening because you're truly seeing stories that you like to see? Or is it because you believe that you're being fed stories that you like to see? So if I can change the belief, but give you a balanced point of view, will that change? So that's an experiment I would love to run. It's kind of hard to do. Uh, we're trying, we're trying to construct a world uh, in an online game. Uh, but, but I think those are two really important issues. And I think uh, behavioral science has a lot to offer. I think the other thing there too is this whole notion of uh, the knowledge illusion. Uh, so Steve Sloman and uh, Phil Fernbach have a beautiful book on this, the idea that people think they know more than they actually do. Right, uh, And so when we looked at issues here in Canada, things like carbon pricing, or we looked at the national pension plan, uh, People have extreme views on those. Uh, you know, people either hate the national pension plan or they love it. Uh, and so, if you did a simple study, which we did a, a very crude version of, where you you go to people, you ask them for their opinion, 
on the national pension plan. Then you show them a little infographic on how the damn thing works, right? Versus a second condition where they see the infographic first and then they give an opinion. We find that explains the polarization. People just don't know. Yeah, I, I've even heard just asking people to explain policies um, very quickly leads them to the realization that they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> and, and it's true for all kinds. Universal, universal healthcare, Brexit. I mean, we've seen this all over the all over the world. People have strong opinions without knowing, right? So, so I think those are the three pieces that we need to fix. Thanks, Dilip. Uh, we are at the end of our uh, conversation. Maybe a, a final question. You know that the Behavioral Scientist publication, as recently, I think it was at the uh, end of last year, maybe beginning of uh, this year, asked the Behavioral Science community to write short articles about the future of behavioral economics and behavioral science. What is your vision of the future of our field? Uh, a, a, a few, I think the two that I just want to highlight today is, is I think the convergence of different kinds of methods. I'd love to see more of that. I think it's happening now, but I think with all of the advances in data science and machine learning, we can now do things that we could not do before, right? So in the Mexico project, we used machine learning to study heterogeneity, which is great, right? And, and uh, otherwise we'd still be stuck in our two to condition experiment world. Uh, so I think that, I, I, I certainly think we'll see a lot more of that. Uh, I also w think we'll see a lot more of what I'm gonna call applied and what I've called before co-creational work. I think a lot more embedded science uh, that's embedded in the context. Uh, so, so those two, I think, uh, are the future of the field. Uh, and, uh, you know, I certainly hope they, that they are the future of the field. Uh, I'd love to see a lot more about the science of using science, um, but but I think that's the way I think our field is gonna grow. I also wanted to just conclude really by thanking you so much. It was really interesting to listen to, to you and, and to learn from you about so many different topics. And I guess uh, really just ask uh, whether there are places you'd recommend um, some of our listeners go to learn more about you and your work uh, perhaps your work at Rotman and, and Bear, um, or others, other other sources you'd recommend. Yeah, I think the e the easiest thing to do is to uh, hop on our Bear uh, website. Uh, the way to do that is really just go to your favorite search engine and type Rotman Bear. And if that search engine does not take you first hit to the Bear website, then you need a different search engine. Uh, but, but also the initiative that I spoke about earlier, uh, Behaviorally Informed Organizations, the website for that is biorgpartnership.com. Uh, and if all of that fails, all you need to do is to send me a tweet at uh, Dilip Soman, and I will be happy to point you to any of those resources. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Dilip. Thank you so very much, both of you. It was a pleasure. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.